Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series, A Portrait of Christian Faithfulness. So let's turn in our Bibles to 3 John, verse 2, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Does God Promise Health and Wealth? I know this is going to seem strange. I wish to spend an entire program on just one verse, and at first glance, it's going to seem like a rather obscure verse at that. So in a sense, this breaks from the theme of 3 John, but I think it's necessary to spend time on this one verse. 3 John verse 2 simply says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Now, perhaps you don't know it, but this verse has become a rather controversial verse, and you might ask, how can that possibly be? Well, that's because in the thinking of certain people, this verse promises financial prosperity to all believers. That is, this verse is one of the favorite verses of the prosperity gospel preachers. Let me give you some examples. One famous and now deceased prosperity preacher said, this is the one verse that has revolutionized my ministry. After reading it, he realized that God didn't want his people to be poor. And so he began to see a way to get himself a new car and a new house. And indeed, he claimed that this verse not only revolutionized his ministry, it made his ministry one of the largest ministries in the world. Well, another prosperity preacher says, how does God prosper his people? Well, the answer is 3 John 2. God blesses you materially as your soul prospers on his word. Indeed, that preacher even went on to say that the economy of the country prospers as people employ Christians. Wow. Still another prosperity preacher said, God's plan is for us to grow financially as we grow spiritually. God knows it's dangerous to put great wealth into the hands of someone who is too spiritually immature to handle it. In other words, as your faith grows and you become spiritually mature, You're going to be acquiring that new house, and you're going to get that dream boat, and you know how that song plays. God wants you to become rich. Well, apart from the obvious, that this kind of thing just doesn't work, what does this verse say? (laughs) You might have wondered why I said this thing doesn't work. Well, the answer is obvious. Is it really true that God would never put wealth into the hands of people who are not spiritually mature? Can we just for a moment open our eyes and look at the real world? You know, I recently took a look at, you know, what many people think are the richest people in the world. It's an extensive list, and I didn't see many believers on that list. And furthermore, the list of the world's wealthy often doesn't include a list of the world's most evil dictators who've made their wealth at the expense of thousands and thousands of their victims. See, if you believe that God is sovereign, Well, we've got to come to terms with that. But to say that God never puts wealth into the hands of people who are not spiritually prepared to handle it, well, that's patently untrue. And furthermore, and yes, I've known some spiritually mature, wealthy Christians, but I've also known some very carnal, wealthy Christians who exercise unrighteous power over others who are haughty and arrogant. And God often allows spiritually immature people to become amazingly rich. That's obvious. And so, as I've said, apart from the obvious, that this simplistic prosperity gospel is simply not true, oh, I I still think you might not accept that. 
So let me give you another piece of evidence. You and I know of prosperity preachers who are exceedingly rich. And you might say, well, if they weren't rich, then they wouldn't be practicing what they preach. So let me put it plainly. They're rich because they have fleeced their followers. They have promised their followers a tenfold increase on every dollar that the gullible will send them. You know, their followers seldom get that tenfold increase, but they have lined their pockets. I remember a conversation with a man who lived in a third world country. He had the opportunity to come to the West. It, it was just a visit. He would soon be returning to his impoverished country. And as we took a walk through our neighborhood, I unwisely pointed out a beautiful home. It was nestled in a beautiful green belt. And, and I said on my walk, I said, I've always enjoyed walking by that house. It's just lovely to look at. And without hesitation, this poor brother said, why don't you claim that house by faith? And I was astonished, and I told him so. I said, I don't desire that house. I just enjoy looking at it. And then I asked him if he had believed the, the message of the prosperity preachers, and he said, yes. And I asked, how's that working for you? And he said, well, it hasn't yet. I need to get to that spiritual place where I'm ready to receive riches. <laughs> Third John verse two, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. When his soul prospered, said this impoverished young man, then I'm going to be able to receive riches. And, and I wept for him. Ah, but all this leads us to ask, well, isn't 3 John 2 inspired by the Holy Spirit? And isn't it true? Well, yes, it is. But and this is so essential. Until we know what the text actually means in context, we'll not understand how to apply that verse to our lives. And because the prosperity gospel has gone global, and by the way, I was recently in India, and many faithful pastors told me that they are being ravished by the prosperity gospel. It's important to take one program here, back to the Bible, in which we make every effort to understand this one verse that has become the cause of a, a great deal of controversy. After all, as we like to say, we teach the Bible. When we say we teach the Bible, we mean that we give ourselves to understand each part of the Bible in its context and seek to uncover what the biblical writers wanted to communicate, not what we want the Bible to say. Let the Bible speak to us. Let us not impose on the Bible what we want it to say. So where do we begin? Well, let's start with this truth. The literary genre of a passage determines its meaning. You understand what I just said? What I meant was the Bible contains a number of literary genres or a number of forms of communication. Let me make that easy. Sometimes the Bible comes in a form that we call historical narrative. That is, it simply describes historical events. You know, I once had a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses at my door, and they soon discovered that I was a Christian. And in order to be combative, they asked me if I went door to door, ringing doorbells and presenting the gospel in houses. And I said, no, I don't. And they said, how come you aren't doing what the Bible says? And I said, well, I didn't know the Bible commanded me to do that. And they said, ah, you haven't been reading your Bible. And they quoted Acts 5.42. It says, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. I said, oh, that's interesting. Have you guys gone to Derby and Lystra? They said, we don't understand. I said, well, the apostles not only went from house to house, the apostles went to Derby and Lystra. 
Why aren't you guys going to Derby and Lystra the way the Bible says? You need to catch a plane to Turkey and go to Derby and Lystra, otherwise you're not doing what the Bible says. Now, I was trying to make a point with them. The literary genre determines the meaning of the text. A historical narrative is simply the Bible telling us of something that actually happened, but that doesn't mean that the Bible commands us to do the same thing. There's a world of difference between a historical narrative and a biblical command. Uh, Let me give you another example. It's called poetry. The Bible's filled with poetry and with poetic images. So, for instance, when Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 15 says, Behold, you are beautiful, your eyes are doves. Well, it doesn't say everyone's beautiful. These are the words of a man towards his wife. It doesn't apply to everyone, and I certainly know that it doesn't apply to me. And furthermore, the woman in question does not have doves in her eye sockets. It's poetry. And poetry isn't supposed to be taken literally. It's symbolic. It uses images to present us with a reality. That's not how historical narratives read. Historical narratives are meant to be taken literally. See, Paul literally went to Lystra and Derby. But if we use the literary genre of poetry, well, we all know that we are meant to read it differently than what we read when we read historical narrative. I mean, all that to say, if you want to understand your Bible, often the place to start is what form of writing is being used. And in the case of 3 John, this is a letter. And what's more, it's a personal letter. And furthermore, since 3 John verse 2 tells us of what John is praying for his friend, Well, it doesn't mean that everyone is promised health and wealth. That would take a personal greeting and make it a generalized promise from God to everyone. And that's not what's in this passage. So what does 3 John verse 2 teach us? Ah, stay tuned. It has a lot to say about our own personal lives. Have you ever wondered how to live a life of faithfulness and service to Christ? For those of us not working in full-time ministry, it can be hard to find ways to be faithful to our Savior in the daily routines of life. Is it possible to live a life of unwavering faithfulness? I'd like to invite you to join in and listen as we work through a five-message series on the book of 3 John. 3 John is the shortest book in the New Testament, and in spite of its brevity, This book provides us with a portrait of what Christians in the early church did when it came to living a life of faith. 3 John provides us with a reference point of what a life of faithfulness should look like, even if we don't work in full-time ministry. It's amazing what God can do when we allow ourselves to be taught by His Word. Listen to this station every day this week to follow along with the series, or listen online at backtothebible.ca. Both Paul and John's letters begin by telling us who is writing the letter. For instance, Ephesians begins with Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Philippians, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Second and third John, more brief, simply begins the elder. 
the person writing, that is John, simply identifies himself as the pastor of the people to whom he is writing. Next, John mentions the man to whom he addresses the letter. He calls him the beloved Gaius whom I love in the truth. I'm going to talk about this reference to Gaius tomorrow, but for now, let's notice the the warm personal nature of this greeting. John loves Gaius in the truth. And then John adds something that many ancient letters might not have included, but it's found in all of the Christian letters that come from that time period. Before getting down to the reason for writing the letter, Ancient Christian letters, all of them, contained a note of thanksgiving for the person or the church that would receive the letter. You know, for instance, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Or the Roman church, Paul writes, I thank my God for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So I hope you can see that in the New Testament, that is, the literary genre of a letter, we find there is a very standard format. They all begin the same way. The person writing mentions himself, then to whom he is writing the letter. Then he includes a personalized blessing for the recipient. Now, in each letter, this blessing is tailor-made for each group or each individual. The blessing is not necessarily a universal blessing. It's an individualized blessing. The Corinthians, says Paul, have been blessed with every spiritual gift. The Romans have been active in sharing their faith. The Colossians were rich in faith, hope, and love, that kind of thing. Now, that doesn't mean that every Christian is rich in faith, hope, and love, or is active in sharing their faith, or understands their own spiritual gifts. You know, in the case of the Thessalonian Christians, Paul mentions that he's thankful that the church became an example of godly living in Macedonia. I hope you see it. Not everyone's an example of godly living in Macedonia, but that church was. It's a personalized greeting. So in 3 John verse 2, please read it in the context of a personalized word of blessing. That doesn't mean there's not an application for us. But if you read the literary form of blessing for Gaius and automatically assume that's got to mean that God promises the same thing for every believer, well, you might want to join my Jehovah's Witness friends and go and visit Derby and Lystra. I hope you see what I mean. So let's look very closely at verse 2. First, we notice that John prays that it may go well with Gaius. Now, other translations say, I pray that you may prosper. But our translation simply says, I pray that all may go well with you. Well, that Greek word translated as either prosper or go well with, well, that's used in only two other places in our New Testament. And the first place is found in Romans 1 verse 10. There it's translated as to succeed. You know, there Paul says, I ask God that I might succeed in my plans in coming to Rome. Another place where that word is found is in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, and there our English translation translates the word as to prosper. Paul writes on the first day of every week, be prepared to give, he says, as the Lord prospers you. That is, give in keeping with your income. So we notice that the word can mean to prosper financially, but it can also be translated as to succeed in any endeavor. 
whether at your work, in relationship to your marriage, in raising your kids, in graduating from university, in experiencing contentment in your private life. I hope you see John doesn't say in which way he wants Gaius to succeed, and I suspect that both John and Gaius knew what he meant, but, but we don't. So I hope you can see that John is not necessarily praying that Gaius would prosper financially. Rather, he's praying that in some way, he wants Gaius to succeed. It's not a promise of wealth. It's rather that he is praying that God might bless him. And that brings us back to the literary form of this writing. John's not promising that all Christians should succeed in every area of life. Rather, he's telling Gaius, a man he knows personally, that he's praying for him in some fashion that God will bring him success. How do we apply that? Should we say, oh, I know what that means. God promises every Christian that their life will be a success. Well, to that I would respond in two ways. First, I might say, it depends on what you mean by success. I mean, take the great apostle Paul as an example. Was his life a success? Well, I'd say so. We know that because at the end of his life, he'd write, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And that sounds like success. But that doesn't mean that Paul died a rich man. Indeed, he died after a prison sentence. He lived in want. He was in chains and then finally executed. And so from a New Testament perspective, we should pray for people that we love, that their lives will be a success. I I think that's good to pray that way. So let's commit to praying for our kids and for our friends and for people that we go to church with and our pastors and for others as well. But second, notice also that it is possible that John is praying that Gaius would be financially successful. That's possible. We don't actually know. But as before, we need to be clear what we mean by financial success. See, it seems to me from reading the New Testament that financial success isn't describing the televangelist who flies around with his own personal Learjet and has three or ten multi-million dollar properties all around the world. John is simply not praying that, and the text says nothing about that. But let's consider John's second prayer request for Gaius. I pray, he writes, that you might enjoy good health. Again, we have to, as before, consider the literary genre. This is a part of the opening of a letter which includes a prayer of blessing. And 3 John 2 doesn't make a promise that all God's people will be in good health. Notice, this is not a promise. It's a prayer of blessing. This passage, quite simply, does not promise all believers that you're going to walk in what prosperity preachers call divine health. So do we know that's true? Well, yeah, we do. You know, for instance, in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he writes them about the well-being of a man named Epaphrodites. And here I'm reading Philippians 2, verse 27, and Paul writes, Indeed, he, that is Epaphrodites, was ill, near death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. That is, God didn't heal Epaphrodites because God promised him that he would live in divine health. Rather, Paul says he healed him, and in this specific case, he healed him so that I, Paul, wouldn't be so overwhelmed with sorrow that I couldn't bear up anymore. 
Or consider Paul's famous words to Timothy. 1 Timothy 5.23 says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So Paul commands Timothy to use wine as a medication to treat his frequent ailments, he says. He doesn't command divine health on him. He rather commands the using of whatever medical treatments were available to manage a recurrent medical condition. Paul didn't command the demons of illness to leave Timothy. No, no. He said, take something to help you make it through. So let's get back to 3 John verse 2. I pray that you might be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Notice, that's not a promise as though Gaius would get more healthy as he gets more spiritually mature. Instead, John prays, I pray that you would be physically healthy as your soul is healthy. No promise, but a sincere prayer of blessing. Now, this sentence has led a great many Bible teachers to wonder whether Gaius was often sick. And given this reality, is John now praying for his healing? Well, I think that seems likely. But does that mean that God would, after John prayed, give Gaius good health? Well, no, it doesn't guarantee that. See, you might remember 2 Corinthians 12. Paul says he is a thorn in the flesh, but God wouldn't take it away. See, word faith teachers refuse to acknowledge this reality, and so they promise their followers something the Bible never promises them. And the result? Disillusionment and people who no longer believe the word. So what does the Bible teach about these things? 2 Corinthians 4.17 tells us that our afflictions are preparing us for eternity. And that is what the Bible teaches. And in the meantime, let's keep praying for people's healing. It seems to me, John, this whole idea of health and wealth and prosperity, uh, those those are hot topics right now. Why would you take it on? Yeah, I I know that sometimes, you know, I don't want to ride a hobby horse here, Ben, but I do know that when we come to a verse that has sometimes been misused, it's important to clarify it for God's people. And then also, because I think uh, there are so many individuals who feel that God promises something in the Word that He hasn't. (laughs) You, You know, Ben, you and I know that, you know, health and wealth is going to come to us in heaven hasn't been promised to us here. So a great many people end up being disappointed because they say God promised it and didn't happen. So it's important to clarify what the Bible promises and put our hope on that. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue this series in 3 John, A Portrait of Christian Faithfulness, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Lorraine wrote, Listening to Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again starts my day off right. It amazes me how God's love reaches into my life daily through these programs. God's Word is so precious. I also get a real lift from Laugh Again with Phil. Sometimes I just need that chuckle to help get me through the day. Lorraine, thank you. Your encouragement lets us know lives are being touched and the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada are making a difference. Has your life been impacted by the Word of God and the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada? With your consistent support as a monthly partner or because of your gift today, the good news is being shared across our nation. 
To join in the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again, or In Doubt, call us with your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.